Welcome back to the program. Father Nagel is going to lead us in a scripture reading and a prayer. I, th- I think we're going to begin with Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you all like wheat, but I have prayed that your faith may not fail, and once you have turned back, you must strengthen your brothers. Lord, we do ask your blessings upon the church, um, upon the successor of Peter and all of his brother apostles, successors of the apostles, ask your blessing on the church and our faith um, in this time of difficulties that we might be faithful and true to the gospel that you proclaimed and you are. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, Father. Well, today I'm going to do something different. I am not going to do any introduction. I'm not going to do any kind of, uh, hey, let's check in on how our Lent is going, okay? <laughs> because I am not going to set myself up for the end where we end up saying we didn't get through <laughs> the amount we said we were going to get through. So I did announce, fathers, that um, we humbly have surrendered the fact that we are not going to get through the introduction and the 10 chapters and epilogue that is approximately 400 pages of pretty dense reading, I would say. Yeah. However, I will give Father Nagel the opportunity, or actually Father Lewis, since I think you had a chance to read the whole book. Yeah. So Father Lewis, why don't you give an overview of the book, and then your impression of it. And then Father Nagel, I know that you did not have a chance to read the whole book, but you did read the sections that we're going to be covering, so I'd like to get your overall impression of the book before mm-hmm. we dive in. Okay. So I I, uh, I really appreciated the, the, the book, not just in its content, but its structure, um, he, he so what he's doing false mercies. He's you know he each chapter is is uh, titled after a, like a question. Hell is it an empty threat? Does faith alone justify? Christ became a sinner. So right from the title, we're we're diving right into what he's going to uh, be addressing. And then um, there's a, a very similar structure from chapter to chapter. Um, he introduces the topic. He uh, he he uh, puts forward um, just kind of a, a quick statement about what the church believes. He puts up all these uh, what other people are saying that get it wrong, and then he addresses each of them. And it struck me that it's very similar to how Saint Thomas Aquinas structured the Summa Theologia, where he, you know each question is you know here's the question, here's the brief answer, here are all the objections, and here's my response to the objections. And um, and he does that chapter by chapter, and there's there's a flow to it too. I, I suspect. Um, to kind of one theme to the next, um, so so that's that's kind of the the, the structure and um, and the topics are uh, for some some of our listeners they you know maybe they're um, esoteric or, or not really at the forefront but he goes right through right to some of those that that are very apropos um, to our current times and our contemporary situation so um, so he's he's trying to speak but. But uh, he also points out that really these are questions that, or, or you know, false mercies or heresies that have cropped up in one form or another, really through much of the life of the church. Um, so there, there's kind of nothing new under the sun, I suppose. Um, I did make some notes. Of my overall impression, I, I noted that uh, you know the author has a heavy reliance on the authority of scripture and tradition, uh, bring and in 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 letting that bring us grounded again. Um, you know that on the one hand that could sound like a criticism, but but it's it's true. He says, look it. If we're going to be Catholic, then our highest authorities are Scripture and tradition. Scripture says this. Tradition has held this, and so to argue otherwise with fancy rhetoric and all this, we got to go back to. And he says over and over again. He de- he de- defines clearly. You know what is papal authority and papal magisterium? What are papal words and what are words of the Pope? And what are rumors about the words of the Pope? For example, <laughs> he even gets into that. You know, and um, and we've got to keep things. You know, and I think he does that to kind of address the elephant in the room, which is Pope Francis's uh, interesting style of of leadership and communication, where he just goes off the cuff. We've got to understand that when he gives an interview on a on a plane, that does not hold the same magisterial weight as a papal encyclical or a conciliar document. And so he reminds us of that time and time again that let's keep things in perspective. Right. Or when someone comes out of a meeting with the Pope and said, the Pope said this to me. Right, yeah. And all of a sudden that's being used as a trumpet and, to right. say, this is what the teaching of the Catholic Church is now. Yeah, exactly. And he, he refers to that a couple of times. So, so he makes it very clear to the author that Scripture and tradition are primary. They inform our faith. 
science and reason can add or supplement our understanding, but you know, faith seeks understanding, but uh, faith does not require understanding. So we can use our philosophy, our reason, everything else to unpack what is given to us, but if it starts to veer off and, 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 uh, and um, uh, contradict what faith and tradition have always taught us, then, then we need to set it aside. Um, he has uh, you know, some repeated statements, like I mentioned, to bring, bring us back, like papal words versus words of the Pope, which I found uh, very helpful. Just like, okay, we're getting lost in the weeds here. He brings us back. Um, so anyway, I found also, kind of, I meant to mention the flow. I, I noted that the first six chapters um, tend to address heresies of faith, but then he proceeds into heresies regarding morality, um, um, what marriage is, what se- human sexuality is all about, these kinds of things. But I found it overall a very systematic outlay um, to each chapter, a very Thomistic, I thought, in its presentation. And, and dense as it was, I found it uh, very uh, approachable, and, and, um, um, and, and therefore I could access it. That's excellent. I, I, I've got a lot to say. I'm sitting on my hands. So I'm going to let Father Nagel talk first, and then I'll, I'll, I'll follow up. So, I, and I thought um, Father Lewis's summation is really good as well in lots of ways. Um, Covering the whole the whole book as a as a whole, I you know it was an this was an interesting experience for me reading this book because it reminded me. Um, Father Lewis mentioned the fact that um, Pope Francis is kind of the elephant in the room here. It's I do think that there's a lot to that, and it comes to me that you know Pope Francis doesn't really have a doctrinal mind. By that, I what I mean by that is. And I don't think he has a canonical mind either. Um, I think he has, I think he would say a pastoral mind. I would say it kind of a, because I, I, I don't like that word because it sets the thing, it seems to say that, well, doctrine and canon law are in pastoral, which is not really the case. But maybe relational, uh, a relationship mind and stuff. And you, we do have to have balance here in terms of doctrine, the individual, how can this person hear this? How, how, is, how does the canon law deal with this particular situation? How do I communicate that? Um, when and how do I speak and act? So, and I think Pope Francis has a, a real concern for that, that, that human uh, dimension there of the, the relationship between him or the, the clergy or whoever the, the person is in dialogue with this person. But I, and I think that his style, so to speak, his kind of, it's, it's the leadership, it's the Pope. So I think that's kind of been the direction of the last nine years. And whether you intentionally do that or not, I think that's kind of been the way we work, at least sort of. And so when I started reading this book, it's kind of like a, a, it reminded me of what it used to be like in some sense in my own life. This is an apologetics book in some ways. Um, and... It is Thomistic as well in that in the way that Father Lewis described. But it was a way of thinking that I hadn't done so much in the last few years as I had previously, certainly as I came into the church or returned to the church, I should say. This book would have been just the kind of book I would have been reading. Um, this, would have been the, I, this is what I would have been interested in, um, this whole idea of truth and how do I know, and, and, and levels of authority, which are, you know, again, it's not, it's not something that Pope Francis would be looking at in terms of all these different distinctions. But it's true, and it's, it's important. So it's, there's, I think you can have imbalances in different ways in terms of canonical, doctrinal, relational things. And so I think we've gone, you know, we go back and forth. And this book kind of brought me back in some ways to thinking doctrinally um, about issues and saying, oh, yeah, you know, this is nothing. I, there's nothing in this book actually that was particularly new to me. Uh, including the the authority structures and Ludwig Auch and Denzinger and all these other um, manuals and things, but it was a reminder for me. And so, in some ways, it was kind of refreshing. You might not think all oh, doctrine and those kind of manuals are refreshing, but but it was there was a clarity of thought here that is the the doctrinal components um, contribution to faith. And so, again, for me, it was kind of a reminder, kind of a take me back to uh, another way of thinking. So I have now three points uh, I want to share. I'm going to be very systematic in my uh, sharing in response to what fathers you have said. The, the first was um, let's let's start with the the Pope Francis element here. Um, the title "False Mercy" it 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 definitely is a nod to the concept of mercy as a principal theme in Pope Francis, and I want to link that to what you shared. Um, both uh, what you just shared, Father Nagel, about Pope Francis's mode of operating as Pope. Um, 
I'm going to go back to a um, coffee and donuts after mass. Uh, coffee and donuts after mass several years ago. Um, when we were back, uh, we were still living on the west side. Our kids were at St. Francis, and a class had to um, – they were hosting the coffee and donuts. It was actually like the last mass. So it was like a lunch thing. And so you had a whole bunch of kids all dressed in their school uniforms there after mass in the hall. And um, there were so many kids that they didn't have a lot to do. So one of the girls at the end, she was supposed to be there to just make sure that the people who came through the line got a bag of chips. And I went and I noticed that there were like five different types of chips. And she had put out a very systematic like row of like five or six each of these types of lace chips and Fritos and Doritos and, uh, and had them beautifully laid out in order. And she was so proud of just having her chips in order. Someone would come and take one and she would replace that one. And I, I, you know me, I got this little kind of glint in my eye. So I went over there and I just started chatting with her. And as I did, I started mixing up all the bags of chips on the table. You're a bad and she's person, just, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> just mixing them up, smiling. And she's like looking at me. She knows who I am. She knows like her, uh, my son is in her class. And I'm mixing up all the bags of chips. And she's just sort of like traumatized that I've mixed up the bag of chips. And I just go back and sit down. And she just like looks at the chips and she kind of puts them all back in order again. And so what do I do? I go back up again and just chat with her again and mix them back around again. And I go back and sit down. And uh, I, I can, I Carrie, you know, I just, I was just teasing, just teasing, right? And Carrie was like, I know somebody like that, somebody who relationally, sees things in order in a family system, a family dynamic, and they go in there and they just mix up all the chips and just get this whole, like, sh- shake the snow globe and everything just kind of floating around. And in some ways that um, I've heard it said by commentators on the papacy of Pope Francis that he's the, he's the Tom Curran at Coffee and Donuts. He said, you know, he sees all of the, the folks who want to have life in such a clean order and everything's in its place and you know what? I'll keep all the things on the table, but I'm going to mix them up a bit. I'm going to kind of mess around the chips and realize that, you know, life life's a little more messy than maybe you like it to be. You got to go get the smell of the sheep on you and get out to the peripheries and accompany people. And these are signs of mercy and you have to open the doors and go out, not just let them come in. And and it's like mixing up a lot of the things that many Catholics were accustomed to having in a neat, clean order. I don't know. Is that an interesting analogy there at all? I think it's a. I think it's an interesting analogy. I've heard that also before. Um, Not about, about me Pope, mixing up the chips, right? But about Pope Francis, that uh, um, you know, um, you know, that's that's something that he's doing, and, and maybe it's a uh, kind of ruffling the feathers and and uh, kind of thereby exposing some of the true colors of of what otherwise we can be stuck in a rut, and we just kind of present a certain fashion, but we can. You know, we can really, um, really know who we are and, and know who each other are when things are out of sorts. How are we going to respond? I, I was thinking of the image. You said the chips, but for me, the image that I, I use is the, the idea of the guy who always wants his hair in, just perfectly in order, and then somebody comes up and kind of musses it. And, <laughs> and, and in terms of, okay, which looks better and which is more life-giving? Is it, is it that, well, I, I, I should look, you know, my hygiene, I should look, I should look good. Like, I should have the hair in the right place as opposed to, hey, I have the windswept look, you know? And, and so I think that in Pope Now Francis, you've just given me language here, Father. Now I can just tell Carrie, Carrie, I'm going with the windswept yeah, look today. Yeah, I'm, I'm messing people's <laughs> hairs up. I mean, I want more natural. And I think that's a Pope Francis would probably see himself as saying, you know, some of the guys are a little uptight here. Let me just kind of put my hand, kind of like you with the chips, just let me mess your hair up a little bit here. And affectionate in some ways, in the sense of, hey, I, I want you to be more natural. So that's, I well, mean, that was the image that came to me. No, and, and if you think about it, there's a, a tremendous strength there. Like, I, I honestly, I mean, can't we all admit when we read. The, some of the early doctrinal writings, like the early encyclicals and uh, addresses of Pope Francis, uh, I think the the one word that came out was refreshing. It was so refreshing to read this personal sharing and and these emphases seemed to open up new um, new inspirations and new senses, new energies to to take action that was not highlighted so clearly. Through the more um, th- through the approach that was maybe more formal, doctrinal, traditional, conservative, 
um, maybe canonically precise, but didn't necessarily lead to that same sense of, wow, this is so fresh and refreshing. So anyways, it's an interesting, interesting point. Okay, my second, uh, just oh, by the way, here's a by the way, since I know Dr. Christopher Malloy, the, the author of the book False Mercy we're talking about today, that wasn't the original title for the book. Uh, his original title was Against Recent Heresies. He was playing it off of St. Irenaeus of Lyon, uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, the, the Against Heresies, uh, the third century um, uh, writing. And so he was trying to update that idea that um, heresies matter, like uh, distorted truths have an impact. And in fact, if you take a look at the introduction, it's a very long expose of statistics. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the, the, the phrase that I've tended to use is we're on a demographic Titanic, mm-hmm. that the church is just bleeding out and just sinking in terms of numbers and, and just the, 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 just the, the face, you know, the, 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 the evidence that is right in front of you is you walk into a church and, and nine out of 10 churches are filled with an old, I'm still one of the youngest people mm-hmm. at mass, which is shocking to say, uh, in many churches, especially if I go to daily mass. Um, and so th- we have we have in some ways bled out a, uh, an entire generation of young people uh, in that younger generation. And uh, Dr. Malloy in this book is saying, we have to trace some part of the burden of why that's happened to the fact that truths matter. What we believe really matters. Ideas have consequences. And so if we can trace back some of the ideas that have gone astray, we'll see that the negative impacts run downstream to the loss of faith of an entire generation of Catholics. So the book is, in some ways, apologetic. In other ways, it's catechetical. And in other ways, it's a, let's call it a intellectual critique of the 20th century, especially of modernism in its many forms. Modernism is, you know, the synthesis of all heresies and Pius X, right? And so the syllabus of errors. And, and he, will, he will look at uh, modernism as sort of the root heresy that has given rise to many of these heresies. And so thus the name false mercy was chosen by the editor and said, look, this is a, a phrase you keep using in the book. We think it's a great way to, to title the book and then bring up the concept that this is about addressing heresies. All right, we'll go to a break. All right. Back in a minute with more Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Curran. I'm, I'm together with Father Kurt Nagel and Father Jeff Lewis, and we are talking about the book False Mercy, Recent Heresies Distorting Catholic Truth by Dr. Christopher Malloy. And I mentioned three points. I've shared two of them. Uh, the third one, I don't remember. So, uh, uh, Actually, no, I think the third one was, was simply that. It was the idea that he is uh, quite systematic in how he presents his material, and um, he is, he's a friend of mine and a colleague, but I don't agree with him in everything. So you might have picked that up if you've uh, read, you probably in reading some of that, you might have wondered, Tom is recommending this book? <laughs> did you think that, Father Lewis, at all? I did at times, yeah, but yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, but in fact, uh, today we are going to discuss, um, we're going to focus in this section of the program on, um, on the chapter on evangelization. And the chapter is chapter seven, and it's called, Is Evangelization a sin. Is evangelization a sin? As Father Lewis pointed out, each of the chapters begins in a question form. The, the title of each chapter is, is a question that he's going to then unpack and answer. So, um, Father Nagel, I'll let you share just a, as an overview of the chapter. What did you think of the chapter as a whole? And then we can dive into specific sections of it, because he covers a lot of ground in the chapter. I thought it I thought it was very interesting. I thought it was a good a good chapter. There's like these two. He deals with the whole what he calls political correctness movement. It's that's kind of dated. I sort of like the woke movement or something like that might be, but it's hard to get a hold of the, the that that very ideology is so amorphous that it's hard to to label. And then the discomfort with self love and with love as one's own community, which are, they're actually related. One flows from the other, but I think it's very topical in terms of 
uh, it's certainly in the United States, uh, as, as terms of what's keeping us from sharing um, uh, our faith with, with others. And so I think that, I thought it was really quite good. I, he does come, the reason this is particularly an issue is that there was, Pope Francis does have some, the ways in which he's made comments and language proselytizing as, as far as, you know, as opposed to evangelizing, and, and uh, Molloy takes that up, and I think that's a good part of the chapter. But then he does give a, a I thought a really good summary of the whole idea of what about those people who is do you have to be Catholic to be saved and, and I thought he gave a pretty good summary of the Catholic doctrine of evangelization so I thought it was useful in terms of the catechetical piece as well so I thought as a whole it addressed the problem you know not all of them but some important problems of uh, or obstacles to evangelization for us why it's an issue um, specifically in terms of recent comments and then presenting, a, I thought, a pretty balanced understanding of, of how we really should go about it. So I thought it was good. Father Lewis. Yeah, I thought, I thought it was good, too. And again, like the, the, the structure of his chapters, you know, first he's going to address, you know, what he, yeah, like, he, like you say, Father Nagel, the PC, uh, the PC movement. And related to that, you know, um, you know he's going to address the wide, what he calls the widespread discomfort with self-love and love of one's own community. And and, uh, you know, this this idea of, of shame, like, you know, uh, you know, I'm Catholic, but but by the way, don't hold that against me. Like, we're ashamed of that or something like that, and, and we're ashamed of proclaiming the gospel. And, you know, he starts, you know, one, one of the interesting, um, uh, uh, he starts getting into um, this, uh, well, I, I, I labeled it the uh, this uh, participation trophy. Well, he calls it too. He says this. The, this All right, before you dive into oh, okay. the details, I'm yeah. looking for overview, okay? Because oh, okay. I've got an overview comment. And oh, okay. And maybe let me, I... I Sometimes you guys, I, I try to make you fathers guess the question I have in my head. Okay, so I'm going to stop making you guess the question I have in my head, and All that right. is, is this title of the chapter the best way to tackle the topic, the real issue at hand? Because I would say that the real issue at hand is not, is evangelization a sin, but rather, why don't we evangelize? Or, why don't we evangelize more? Mm-hmm. I think that that's a better question. And, and, I think, and honestly, go ahead, Father. I think that the title comes from the Pope Francis comments. Um, I get it. That's where he's coming from. But I agree with you in terms of what the real issue is and, and really what most of the chapter is about. It's really what's keeping us from evangelizing. Yeah, yeah. And that for me is like, it's almost, it's like more pertinent. Right. Because right. his, the, the uh, this is something I, I mentioned this on Sound Insight recently, and it's, the doorway through which you enter a space impacts what you're going to see or appreciate or emphasize about that space. If you go in through the garage door versus the basement door through the front or versus the front door, or you climb through a window, um, you're going to get a first impression that's different. You're going to have an emphasis that's different. The same is true with regards to uh, topics, themes, theological issues. So if we said the issue is evangelization, you can come through various doorways to address that issue. The issue evangelization means to proclaim good news, to announce the gospel of Jesus Christ is the work of evangelizing. And so when we think about the pressing issue of evangelization today, um, because it's the the reason for being of the church, it's the essential mission of the church, it's, it's, uh, it's what we are here to do, is to evangelize, then the question is, are we doing it? And if we're not, why aren't we doing it? And so I think that uh, it's, it really matters because you're only going to highlight, not only, you may end up with a less than thorough, complete, or even you might miss out on the essence of what really is at work with regards to, to the question we're talking about, right? So is evangelization a sin? It's almost easy to simply say, well, of course it isn't. And that comment, we can kind of brush away and move forward. Um, but the question, why don't we evangelize, it really opens up, I think, a fruitful topic of conversation. Mm-hmm. So that was, for me, like right at the beginning, uh, if I had to present a, a critique, it is what we're going to get from the chapter is in some ways um, shunted into a narrower trail that I would want because of the question that's used as the entry point for the topic at hand. Okay. So now respond, Father <laughs> Lewis. What do you think about that? Does that make any sense? I think that's a, like, 
that's a really important thing for folks to just think about when you if you're going to get a new perspective on something it is often going to come from a different way of addressing a topic a different way of looking at it so that's what i was trying to do in reading this uh and hopefully i did in reading this was like okay this isn't how i would enter this topic let me try to appreciate what Dr. Malloy is doing in this book by ap- approaching it in the way that he did. Mm-hmm. So, any comments, Father Nagel? Yeah, I is, sure. I think the idea of if you look at that sense, even somebody who's not really well grounded in the faith, etc., would look at it and say, "No, obviously, evangelism is not a sin," and so it is. You brush it aside pretty quickly, and so the first sentence, you know, is not really true. Another flare. Uh, error afflicting us today is erroneous claim that evangelization is a sin. I don't think that's a huge affliction, but I do think your your take on it. If if the question was in the title, why are we not? Why don't we evangelize more? That would be a convicting question for almost everybody who picks it up. Um, so I, I do think that's and that's what he spends most of the the chapter on as well. Father Lewis, any comments on that before we uh... go into the chapter? Yeah, so um, I, know, I, just, I didn't think of that about the, the title. I still think it's a, um, a catchy title that, that it drew me in. I would say at the same time, being a Catholic, well, of course it's not a sin. But then I start to wonder why I would even ask that in the first place. And I think you know, if, if an aspect of the book is apologetic, then, then uh, maybe training us in some regard how to go about um, you know the, the the mission of apologetics and evangelization related to that. There are people who are going to come across that will say, "Why are you shoving your religion on me?" and in an offense, in an offended tone. So from their perspective, they may not use that language, but their their tone and their taking offense suggests that they think that just to talk to them in an evangelistic fashion is 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 sinful. And so um, I think I, I figured that was the angle he was he was going going through when he asked that. That question, but um, but yeah, I mean, he, yeah, he quickly goes into why don't we evangelize more now that we've you know answered the the quick and easy question. But uh, anyway, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't. The title didn't strike me as <laughs> as uh, uh, problematic or or misleading or anything like that. But yeah, I think that. So here's here's what I would say. Uh, so before I before we can go into the paragraph uh, into the chapter is that um, when. Because evangelization is not a sin, of course, and, and when he gets into the teaching part and he starts to catechize, he's really addressing the things that came before it, mm-hmm. whether it was a Luther and Nietzsche or whether it was the PC movement in its various forms, is that in a certain sense, it it corrals his approach to unfolding the teaching of the church into a way that addresses those issues. And, and here's what I mean. There's another way of doing it, and that is... Um, why don't we evangelize? Because we haven't yet been touched so deeply by Jesus Christ that he becomes the very meaning of our existence. And how can I not proclaim Jesus Christ? That's the simple answer. We don't evangelize because we have not yet truly had that transformative encounter with Christ that makes Christ our everything. To live is Christ, to die is gain. That's the first reason. And the second reason is we're apathetic. We're just too indifferent. We're too comfortable in our own lives so that we are indifferent and apathetic to the situation of others, not realizing that they who don't know Jesus Christ in an intimate, personal, profound way and are not in relationship with Christ in a living way through the church are suffering tremendous loss and pain and spiritual bondage, darkness and difficulties in their marriage, in their work life, and ultimately with regards to who they are and what they are meant to be in the eyes of God. It's only Jesus Christ that will set anyone free, any marriage free, introduces mercy, forgiveness, restoration, new life, joy into individuals and families. How can we not proclaim the gospel to them? Don't we love them enough or care about them at all to be able to help them find a way out of darkness in their lives? That's why I evangelize. Yeah. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, none of that was in there. Right. None of that was in the in the chapters. And I'm like, ah, that's what I wanted. Yeah. Well, yeah. How so, do I really feel about it? Yeah, I don't know how you feel about it, really. <laughs> but... but um, um, yeah, he could have. Yeah, he 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 could have. Maybe we think he should have gone more into, into that direction. Um, um, you know, I, I think why don't more people do that? And he could have talked more about this. But you know, you're speaking with a confidence and a conviction that um, that a lot of folks don't have. You know, 
I know that there's a God, I know that there's a hell, and it remains head knowledge, because why? They lack a personal encounter or like a, a stunning realization that, holy cow, there's real things like evil, and, uh, and that leads to hell. And so I want to get away from that and go toward God, who I also know. And so um, maybe being too comfortable uh, and apathetic, um, a, an aspect of that or a, a rotten fruit of that is because we're so comfortable, why should I bother myself to have an encounter with God? Things are pretty good right where I am. And so, um, anyway, that's one uh, response I, I have. I would say, Tom, everything you just said is true. No, your number two flows from number one, and there's not number one. Um, that being said, I think that's not the book he wanted to write. Um, this is a very intellectual book, I felt. And so this is where, again, the, the balance, uh, I, I, I use the doctrinal versus the relational, or, and that may be a wrong word, um, but... I think you're seeing that, okay, there, there's a downside to just seeing everything in terms of heresy as opposed to um, the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and trying to, you know, you can't, you have to have both. Um, there, has to be, there has to be this balance of, of both the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit's uh, uh, movement in my life, but also that, that has intellectual components and results in, in fruit as well that have to be understood. So I, I, I completely hear what you're saying. Um, I think I think Malloy. I could be wrong, but he'd probably say, "Yeah, well, Tom, you're asking me to write a book that that's not the book I wanted to write." Well, and and fair enough. Um, I I you can't do every good thing in a book. Um, it's impossible. Um, if uh, if there was one thing that I think could have been amplified, it would be the last section of this chapter where he's talking about the church's teaching mm-hmm. because he emphasizes in this section on the church's teaching um, so much of the doctrine prior to John Paul II. Uh, he does eventually get to Vatican II and then John Paul II, and he ends with Vatican II. And, um, and, and you look at the, the final quote of, the par- of this chapter before the conclusion— and it's a quote from John Paul II, which I know and love. God is opening before the, this is on page uh, 291. God is opening before the church the horizons of a humanity more fully prepared for the sowing of the gospel. I sense that the moment has come to commit all of the church's energies to a new evangelization and to the mission ad gentes, which means to the proclamation of Jesus Christ to people who have never even heard his name. No believer in Christ, no institution of the church, can avoid this supreme duty to proclaim Christ to all peoples. I mean, do you hear the fervor, Mm -hmm. the urgency, the the dramatic, uh, uh, bold proclamation that John Paul II is saying here. If, if he started the chapter with this quote, I think he would have written a different, cha- a different chapter. Uh, but in ending here, there's almost a then, there's a way in saying, gosh, you know what? If you pondered that, you'd end up saying, well, why isn't that happening? Well, why isn't the church? Is the church committing all of her energies? Is the church doing this supreme duty? Is, do they sense this horizons of a humanity more fully prepared? Are we sensing this moment has come to commit all of the church's energies, not just a little bit of the church's energy, but all of the church's energies to a new of it? If we begin there, then all of a sudden it would be like, well, if that's not happening, it's because, well, we're, we don't realize it and we're indifferent to it. We're not equipped. We don't feel comfortable. We don't feel confident. Well, well how do we start addressing those things? So um, I think that he does eventually get there at the very, very end, but then doesn't uh, unpack it. It's sort of like that's the that that was sort of the cherry on top of the chapter when I think it should have been the the foundation at the base. So, okay, well, um, with that said, why don't we take a break and then we'll actually go back to the beginning of the chapter and take a look at these different forms of uh, the PC movement, uh, the politically correct aspect of things, because he has some really interesting things to say in that section about. Um, the, politi- the politically correct reasons why we have a distaste for evangelization. This is Tom Kern. I'm with Father Kurt Nagel and Father Jeff Lewis. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to the program. We are, this is a Sacred Heart Radio book club edition of, uh, of Sound Insight, and we are discussing the book False Mercy by Dr. Christopher Malloy, Recent Heresies Distorting Catholic Truth, published by Sophia 
Press. And we are talking about the chapter, Is Evangelization a Sin? And uh, at the beginning of the chapter, he identifies these occasional causes for the current confusion about um, about evangelization. And in the first one, uh, he spends, uh, I think, probably the, the majority of the chapter unfolding these different forms of p- the political uh, the political correctness and the politically correct movement. And Father Lewis, you were ready to jump in before I so <laughs> rudely interrupted you and, and proclaimed Jesus Christ on the program. That was a joke, Father. You mercifully uh, <laughs> But it wasn't a false me. mercy. It wasn't a false mercy. Um, but no, go ahead and, and um, why don't you let our folks um, uh, that are listening to the program hear a little bit more about what is he talking about when he says that there's this sense of political correctness today and that there is a connection between the remnants of what's going on in uh, un- at the at the base of political correctness and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, when he introduces the phrase political correctness movement, he uh, falls at which forbids anyone to claim to have a truth that objectively obliges others. And then when he starts to unpack it, one of the first things that um, stuck out to me is one of the examples, and um, you know, he there's this uh, tendency for the the PC movement to conflate the dignity of the human person, which is innate in all of us and God-given, with moral excellence. That's how he mm-hmm. puts it. Above all, the movement conflates the dignity of the individual with moral excellence, meaning that that uh, what I do must be good because I am good. Okay, and and like all things, he he goes to talk about how you know that's uh, that's just fundamentally not true. Someone born with a limp. And, you know, is impeded in the person's ability to walk and move. So what that person is is doing is is not as good as it could be. The person is still full of dignity. That's true, and and yet the, what this person does, there's there's an injury there that needs doing. So he he uses as an example to say this is true in the moral realm as well. And um, and where I was uh, looking at after that was because we've conflate the two. You're a good person, therefore all that you do is good. You know, we can't stand the thought of someone being first place, second place, third place, because now you're now you're laying down, you know, this uh, this uh, objective truth in terms of competition. So we get the rise of participation trophies. Whatever happened to what did he say? Whatever happened to uh, to ice cream bars after the game or something like that? And so, you know, it's true. It was cupcakes, by was, the way. Oh, cupcakes. It was cupcakes. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Like you know, let's just have that. But but you know, if if there's and so, therefore, evangelization is a sin from that perspective because I'm trying to convince you by evangelizing to you that there is a better way. There's a better way to your marriage. There's a better way to being in relationship with others. There's a better way of living life than you're currently living, and, and the key is faith in Jesus Christ. And let me show you how. Well, that's a sin because you're placing a judgment that, wait a minute, my life is just fine, thank you very much, and and uh, and so that that's the sin, you know. You, I can't say that I have a better path because every path leads to whatever is happy for you. Yeah, yeah. Father Nagel, you want to pick up on that? Well, that... I, I actually underlined that same quote that uh, Father Lewis started with, and I thought it was a really good. I thought that was an interesting point for me. He said, "Uniqueness equals moral excellence. My own uniqueness is my moral excellence." That's another way I think you. Another way of phrasing that today would be diversity. Um, diversity equals moral excellence. Uh, I think that that in and of itself it's good, which is again I don't think a logical statement. But I I would on page two sixty eight, the second paragraph on the bottom, there's this idea we must replace PC with the truth of human dignity. So and I think just to sort of back off that the, human dignity is this is the the entrance way and the, the strength of the political correctness the uh, you know the woke movement whatever you want to call it. They're dealing with, a, in, in approaching, you mentioned a door through, you know, how do you enter? There is, a, there is something of the gospel here, just a mistaken understanding, but the idea of the human dignity is there, but it's just, they've got it wrong. First, there is the dignity of being an individual human, a person. This is our ontological uniqueness. Second, there is the dignity of being a good human being. And so this idea of there's a, some sort of exterior standard or theological goal to reach is something, as Father Lewis says, this is not going to cut it today um, because, again, it's judgment, judging. The, the, the world would say there's no, there's no place, there's, there's no stance outside of my own will that can judge me because that's who I am and I alone can, 
can make that judgment. So it, obviously blocks evangelization is something that's invasive, or as they would say in the first paragraph, colonization. It's, it's another power trying to take me over. Yeah, I, I, I love your points here. In fact, this part, I, I really enjoyed Dr. Malloy's uh, teasing out these themes, and I thought he made some wonderful connections, right? So I think his entry point for this whole idea of evangelization to sin is you can't proselytize. You can't impose your belief on others because they have this dignity and they have this religious freedom, this religious liberty when it comes to, in conscience, the decisions that could determine their sense of ultimate destiny. Um, and he, he uh, I don't know if he, he never mentioned it, but he is drawing upon John Paul II's understanding of the person as gift, that each person is a gift, and he beautifully then says that human, you know, today's society has a sense of that, the PC movement. He didn't mention the, univer- uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that um, the, the United Nations declared in like 1950 or 51. And it has a Christian base to it, but it wasn't identified that every person has a dignity that must be uh, recognized and it's inviolable. And that's definitely something that shows up today in, in our culture, that PC sense that my child is unique. Um, but the a second way that I would have said it is each person is a gift, if that's their identity. That's also their purpose. Go and be a gift. And that's that, did you notice what Father Nagel used, the word teleological? Mm-hmm. Did you notice that, Father Lewis? That was You're, you're flexing here on us, uh, Father Nagel. Oh, well, you know. Uh, <laughs> so if you are a gift, then go be a gift. And that's the part that has the drama to it. Will you be the gift you are intended to be? Will you live in accord with your authentic identity? And I thought that Dr. Malloy does a great job of drawing out this flattening of those two, the reduction of one to the other. But it's a subtle point, and it's not always easy to tease out the difference. And so we have participation trophies. Right. We don't want to evaluate how well are you living as a gift that you are. And you know what? Living that way, are you actually being a gift, or are you destroying the gift quality that you are? And so I thought this was a, a, great, um, a great part of this chapter to say there are linkages between things that are running at the foundational level of uh, the cultural, of our society today in terms of how we talk about human beings. But those things need to be purified, corrected, improved, elevated in the light of faith. So I thought this was, was one of my favorite, it was really my favorite part of the chapter was when he yeah. was talking about the, the different strands of PC and how they relate to our faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is yeah, and, uh, you know, that's the... Uh, the opposite of that is, you know, that's the, the 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 tough shell that evangelization seeks to crack is is it's conflated so much that there's an attitude in the in the in the world that, you know, I, you know, I am a gift, go be a gift. Well, wait a minute, me just showing up is all I need to do. Here I am, world, love me and, exactly, and giving rise <laughs> to like this entitlement kind of a thing that I'm so much a gift that you ought to thank me for being here, kind of a thing. And, well, I won't, but we're going to go to a break, and when we come back, I'm going to have you talk about the malicious form of political correctness uh, that he he starts to get into on pages 267 and 268, and he makes a claim here that malicious PC, which attempts to shut down anyone critiquing my way of life, and attempts to shut down a sense of this objective meaning of what it is to live as a gift, is based on conscience that people's consciences are bothering them and they want to shut down voices that would bring a light into the darkness. Uh, I'd love to hear what fathers you have to say about that in a minute on Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Kernan, the Sacred Heart Radio Book Club edition of Sound Insight. We are discussing the book False Mercy by Dr. Christopher Malloy, M-A-L-L-O-Y, Sophia Institute Press, if you'd like to get this book on recent heresies, distorting Catholic truth. And there's an introduction in 10 chapters. It's 400 pages long, and we're covering the entire book in the court. No, we're not. In fact, I, I'm not, we're not even getting through the one chapter. We said we were going to get through two chapters, and I don't think we're getting even through the one chapter. <laughs> So let's talk about the malicious form of PC and the sense that, quite simply, conscience is bothering those who prop up immoral ways of living with ideology. In the end, the PC movement is not a movement of love. It's not sympathy for those who sin out of weakness. It is rather distaste for God and man. I wondered about that. I wondered about that because I, I have this sense that um, when you sin— it reduces the sense of sin and the sense for God. This was Paul VI, that the sense of sin 
diminishes our sense of God. And so conscience can become quieted. And so there are times in which I get frustrated if I'm speaking the truth to one of my kids. And if they're bound up in a darkness, there's a sense of they're not rejecting me because their conscience is being moved, but they're just not living and they're stuck in dark, in darkness. So uh, how do those two things uh, live together. The, the uh, Dr. Malloy's point about light shines in the darkness, but then there are those whose conscience has been darkened and they are resistant to the truth. Mm-hmm. Well, and so, you know, so resistant to the truth, it's not enough to just, you know, what are, what are those popular bumper stickers we see, you know, coexist, right? And made of the different religious symbols. And well, if you, if, if the people with those bumper stickers would actually live that and, and leave us alone, then maybe we could, but, but uh, you know, not only are they uh, resistant to the light that's trying to shine in the darkness, but they'll they'll sneak, they'll 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 uh, strive to 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 put that light out. It made me think. We're recording this on Friday. The first book, uh, first reading from Mass today is "Let us beset the just one, because he is obnoxious to us. He sets himself against our doings." Just the fact that the just one is there in their orbit is enough to set them over the edge and say, "We got to get them." It doesn't mention anything about the just one trying to correct them in their ways, but he's going to just do what he's going to, you know, you do you over here. And that's not enough. And this is where the malicious form of PC comes in. It's like, you know, it's not enough that you have light and just let us be in the darkness. But, you know, you're over there. We're going to go get you. You ought to be in the darkness, too. And uh, it's, it's a counter counterattack. Um, kind of thing. So I think, I think that's one aspect of, I think, how the, the two merge. You know, I... Tommy, I think you asked, asked a pretty good, interesting question there. Is it um, where is this cancellation culture? How you know whatever the malicious uh, attempt to suppress um, again the Christian perspective is? What, what's where's that coming from? Is it a bad sort of bad conscience trying to defend itself? I I think maybe maybe in some. So I'm sure it's not a, a black and white either or completely. But I, I honestly think. That that's almost giving too much credit to the remnants of a Christian ideology in our culture. I think it's probably more likely for more the people who are most likely to actually act in an aggressive or a sort of a persecuting way. I think the 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 woke movement, the that whole critical theory that that's an ideology of its own, with a religious intensity of of seeking the good. Uh, now I wouldn't agree necessarily that it's, it's always good, but I think. It, there's a, there's a competing ideology out there that you know what I think that's where the, the, the they're saying you guys are you guys are undermining the good not us um, my conscience requires me to do this it's not it's not, my conscience is not suppressing this and making I actually believe this and you're you are a hater or a bigot yeah that thank you you said it better than I did and it's it's that. Um, I wish that everyone's consciences were so um, subtle and uh, sensitive, uh, but I just don't see see that people are are actually convicted about uh, uh, of again false beliefs shape how people see things and then their attitudes towards things. Well, we have about five minutes left, and there's a whole section in here about hatred and uh, correcting hatred for self love and this different forms of love. Uh, I think that for me was more meaningful. Um, than the section about Nietzsche and Luther and their approach to evangelization. But I'll leave it to you, fathers. Um, you, you have a couple of minutes each to share uh, any other comments you'd like to about this chapter on evangelization as a sin. You could talk about the words of Pope Francis, if you want, the teaching of the Church, um, whatever you'd like to say in, in this last segment of the, of, the, uh, of the program. And Father uh, Lewis, are you ready? Yeah, okay. I mean, there's a a, a clause and uh, a, a, you know, kind of a section in this chapter toward the end of this section. It's on page two seventy six, going to two seventy seven. That that struck out to me, and he he presents the problem, and he and he and he goes to the solution. The solution is not that complicated. The answer to this, uh, to how do we answer this uh, this hatred of self love? The answer is that there is a genuine self love deep in human nature. Noble aspirations for the true, the good, and the beautiful are to be celebrated. The desire for happiness is a fundamental root of human morality. Therefore, defending the truth and human nature, loving the good, affirming beauty are harmonious with and necessary for a Christian life. And I think he uh, he presents that in in response to to uh, among other things to to Luther that there, there's there's 
and he and he picks he he picks up on what Luther lays down throughout many of his chapters. But a fundamental heresy of Luther is that we are so bad that even thinking that we're doing something that's good, we're doing it for a good reason, is itself sinful because I'm I'm not yet purified in my complete hatred of self. It's not for pure love of God. I'm doing this because I feel a little good that I did it for the glory of God. And therefore, it is wholly sinful because there was a little bit of, I, got, I felt a sense of reward out of it. So he's trying to address that, that no, that's a good thing too. That's God giving us a little bit of a grace and a good that, uh, that we were able to do this, and, and that's a gift. Yeah, that, that's a beautiful part of the chapter, mm-hmm. yes. Father Nagel, you have two minutes. What would you want to share in the last two minutes about this chapter? I would just say the other piece of the self-love thing, we see this, if you don't think this is true, we see it in terms of assuming on some, many, and powerful, that America's mostly bad, that Western civilization is corrupt and destructive and violent, the Catholic Church is a sinful, bureaucratic institution. All of, there's elements of truth to those because we're fallen human beings. But I think that... I think... Ukrainian, give me me a little break here, but I think the Ukrainian war is sort of checking on this. You know, here's a country, is it possible to be an imperfect but nevertheless virtuous country or church or civilization? So I think that this section, self-love, the hatred of self-love, it connects with this first part about PC. The whole ideology is there, but there is a way to react against this. So I just found that very important and convicting too. Well, and just to to end on that point, um, one of the things that it, this shows the gift of scholarship. Like Dr. Malloy did a lot of research, not only into like PC culture and the concept of self-hatred and self-love, but he then traces it back through Luther and Nietzsche and how they have... Um, manifested, you know, these ideas get sewn into cultures and they give rise to ways of looking at things and living. And that's one of the gifts then is that we can then say, well, wait a minute now, what sources are we drawing from Mm -hmm. to help cleanse our minds of these kind of things? And what are we letting to be sewn into our minds and hearts that will then give rise to healthier ways of living? So I think that's one of the the greatest gifts that this book offers is that you have somebody who's pondered these issues quite a bit and does so from the standpoint of scripture and authentic Catholic tradition and attempts to then apply them to the pressing issues of the day. So that, I think that's, that's the gift that False Mercy offers today. Well, fathers, thank you so much for being with me. I've taken time and uh, join me tomorrow for more Sound Insight. God bless your day.